everyone. Welcome back to the Earth on Survival Guide, the podcast for all disciplines, paths, players, and game masters with your questers, Josh and Dan. I am Dan. I am Josh. And on today's podcast, we'll be discussing all things Gen Conical and Quizzical. A little bit on the dragons at the end, but other than that, folks, uh, Josh has a quick Gen Con recap to give us. So, hi, everybody. <laughs> I don't know how quick this is going to be. Oh, take your time. It's your podcast. It's your podcast too, Dan. And it's also our <laughs> listeners' podcast because Absolutely. without them, where would we be? Just talking into the void. Well, we would just be talking to each other. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I am back from Gen Con. As we record this, I got back just a couple of days ago, but this is going up next week. So I will have been back a little bit over a week. If you follow me on Twitter and or Facebook, you would have seen the pile of swag that I showed off when I got back and managed to unpack everything and kind of stack it up nicely on the coffee table. Yep. And you probably will have, if you have seen that picture, noticed the large number of Earth Dawn books that were in that because we haven't had a show, we haven't had a Gen Con in where the company has been there for three years. 2019 yeah. was the last time that Faza Games had a booth presence, which meant that we had books. I was at Gen Con just personally last year, but we didn't have a booth. But that meant that there were a whole bunch of books that I had not yet gotten my physical copies of, because usually <laughs> what I will do is at Gen Con, I will grab my contributor yeah. copies, my, yeah. my company copies of everything that sort of had come out in print for the past year. And in this case, that was quite a bit. I finally, they'd actually been out for a while, um, but finally got my limited edition copies of some books. And then also picked up Iopos, Empty Thrones, Haven, the Ashcan editions of the uh, Legends of Barsave chapters mm. 6, 7, and 8, uh, yep. which were in print, but I had not gotten copies of them yet because I think we had printed them to have available as a Kickstarter. We haven't done print copies of 9 yet. 10 is going into layout here shortly. Um, speaking of layout, Vasgothia is will actually probably have been released by the in PDF by the time that this episode goes live. We were trying to get like final sanity check proofread done before Gen Con. I put a bunch of corrections in late Monday night, got up then at like 4 a.m. Tuesday to fly out to Gen Con, got like maybe an hour of sleep that night beforehand, plus another like 45 <laughs> minutes of sleep on the floor of the JFK airport during yeah. a layover. Tuesday was our flight day. It was a very long day. I was traveling with my kids. My kids were great. Uh, my daughter was very, very anxious about flying. She actually technically had flown before, but she was like four months old going to my brother's wedding. So she obviously doesn't remember that. Nope. She was very anxious about flying, did not want to have a window seat. Uh, on the first flight, we had three legs. Third leg, she wanted the window seat. There you go. Couldn't get it on the middle flight because it was a larger plane where it was like two, three, two, and we had the three seats together in the middle. Yeah. Anyway, all of that aside, flight out was great. Flight back was slightly less great only because my <laughs> daughter decided that she was fine without the Dramamine and we had a little bit of a rough oh. descent and landing into Reagan National Airport for the first leg of our flight home and uh, ended up needing to take advantage of the barf bag. Oof. 
took a Dramamine during the layover and was fine <laughs> on the second leg. Yes. But broadly, like, that works. things were good. So the trips were good. Um, our hotel was downtown. It was the Holiday Inn. It was not connected, but it was only like a less than 10-minute walk from, from our hotel to the convention center. Get your steps in. Which is good. We got the steps in. Um, kind of rough because it was humid, as is usual the case for Indianapolis in August. It was humid <laughs> and hot most of the days. Wednesday, which is sort of the, the load-in day, I did not help set up or anything because I took care of our traditional trip with the kids to the Indianapolis Zoo, which uh, is a pretty good zoo. I, yeah. I had never actually been there before, but um, the kids had gone in the past. I went with and uh, uh, several other people that I was friends with from the Crit Crew, that is the Discord community d- dedicated to the Crit Show. Yes. There were like another half a dozen people that uh, we all kind of went as a group to the zoo, spent the day there. Kids wore sunscreen. I did not. Uh, My sunburn has faded enough now. But man, it was rough doing Gen Con (laughs) with the lanyard and the badge and the shoulder bag and everything with like my upper shoulders and neck all bright lobster red from having gotten too much sun walking around the zoo all day. So you feel kind of like a Sherpa, but an abused Sherpa at that. It, like it was, it was very itchy and uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah. Broadly speaking, Gen Con was good. It felt a little bit more like Gen Con's pre-COVID, just in terms of the people there and whatnot. It was still very, like, the, the requirements in order to attend Gen Con in order to get into the vendor hall to play in games and stuff like that. Um, You needed to show proof of vaccination. They had a place set up where you could either show like an image of your vax card, or if you had your vax card, or if you had like the, the electronic one that you keep on your phone or whatever, you had to show proof of that along with an ID and then you got a wristband. Yeah. And then you also had to be masked unless you were in a designated area for consumption of food. Gotcha then that was it. So like the Gen Con event area and stuff itself was all required masked and vaxxed. Yeah. That was not something that necessarily held true in the broader downtown area of Indianapolis. No. Outside in various restaurants and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, There have been reports coming out in the aftermath of Gen Con of people having tested positive um, so there definitely is a little bit of a of a outbreak of sorts that is coming about as a result of attendees. Mm-hmm. Thus far, uh, I did take one home test the Monday after I got back. So a couple of days ago, that came back negative. Yeah. Uh, I have not been exhibiting any symptoms. The kids had gotten their boosters like three weeks before, so they were about as good as could be. Yeah. Crossing our fingers that that we end up not... Contracting anything. Contracting it. So we'll hope there. Mountain Shadow, the plush, we had a limited number of those available at the show. Uh, yeah. They were very popular. Um, I don't know whether we actually sold out of all of them, but we were definitely got rid of a lot of them. <laughs> I ran three sessions of the adventure that I planned Probably. for that year. Yeah. Called Scarlet went, Tide. Yeah, it, it went well. Uh, so my... Gen Con adventure prep kind of has three stages to it. 
Stage one occurs panic. in, well, no, no, no. This is before <laughs> panic. This is oh, well gotcha. before panic. <laughs> Fair. Stage one occurs in like December or late November when they start putting together the event catalog. When they open it up to submit events to be run oh, at yeah. Gen Con, you submit them several months in advance. And because we try and submit everything together as a company so that we can get rooms together and space together and whatnot, that they're kind of happening at the same place, we all submit our events in late November, early December, whatever the, the deadline is. Yeah. But all that we need to come up with at that point is the name, a brief description. Players. When we're going to run it and, and yeah. how many players it's going to have. And so all I need to come up with in at that point is a name and a basic idea, which I can do. <laughs> I then don't do anything about it for like six or seven months. Yeah. And then it gets to be late June or early July. And it's like, oh, I have to have this thing prepped and ready to go for Gen Con. I need, I need to have it prepped and ready to go before I leave for Gen Con, especially the pre-generated characters that I make, because yeah. I actually print those out at home and I get the like plastic report covers that you can get at like Staples or whatever. Sheet protectors. Well, not not sheet protectors, ah. but these are like oh, a plastic yeah, report cover with the with the with the thing. Like yes. these are not, not the sheet protectors have like the, the holes to go into like a three ring binder. Yeah. 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 It's a report cover. You're right. Yeah. A report cover. So generally when I'm setting up things, I will set it up and have tickets available for six players, but I will actually prep eight pregens. And I do this for a couple of reasons. One, to give people a little bit more choice. Yeah. Two, there are eight name giver races. So I have one character of each name giver race available. Yes. And three, my games are popular enough that they almost always sell out. Yeah. But I like to have a couple of extra characters in case somebody shows up the day of and says, hey, I've got generics. Because sometimes people will no show. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. But I have an extra, I have a couple of extra characters so that if somebody shows up and wants to play and the rest of the people who had, who got regular tickets, mm -hmm. if we have a full table otherwise, aren't upset by somebody additional coming in there's a character that's available for them to do so because yeah. I like to have people play if they want to play. Now, of course, I've been doing this for a while. So on my computer, I have a whole bunch of pre-generated characters. I generally do third or fourth circle characters just because it gives the players a, a little bit more options, like more talents to play with, more abilities, some special stuff gets them a little bit more survivable in terms of having higher death and unconscious ratings and things like that. Not that there's anything wrong with a raw first circle character, yeah. but I think for some of the disciplines in particular, we talked about this when we were talking about the novice and, and journeyman tiers, yeah. how a lot of times you don't necessarily get the full suite of what your character is capable of until you get some of those second or third circle discipline talents and some of the options. Like the archer really shines once you get into, you know, most of them really do once yeah. you get into like, you know, around third circle or thereabouts. So I like to make the characters that way. They're not that much more complex to play with. They also end up with a little bit higher steps. So you're rolling a little bit better dice, stuff like that. Anyway, yeah, you're in the groove. So this year, my adventure was called Scarlet Tide. The idea was that it was going to deal in some capacity, like the description was 
who or what is behind the recent pirate attacks that have been plaguing the Aras coast. That was it. That was yeah. my entire pitch back in last winter. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to be doing this and it's going to be pirates and I'm going to be dealing with maybe the river or the sea or whatever, you know what? I'm going to do something a little bit different this year. I'm going to have a Tuscrang boatman as one of the options. Rightfully so. And you know what? I'm going to have a Windling Cavalryman as one of the pre-generated character options, which I have never, I've, I personally have never run a game with a Cavalryman at all. Yeah. Windling Cavalryman is the easiest one to deal with. And Gareth is proud. And, and Gareth is proud. <laughs> but it was like, you know, I, cause I like to have, I do a couple of magicians. I do a couple of heavy combat types, warriors, sword master or whatnot. Yeah. And then like sort of, specialist generics whatever scout usually archer mm -hmm. troubadour is usually a, a common choice in there as well yeah but this is what i but i decided that um that i was going to go with a windling cavalryman as one of the things yeah anyway i got the pre-generated characters made i did that like a couple of weeks beforehand those were all set and those were all ready to go and then i did in one sense even less physical prep for my sessions, my, for my scenario than I had done in past years. Usually what I do while it is not like a written out and sort of close to be ready to publication kind of outline thing, yeah. I generally have like sheets that will have like the various scenes and stat blocks and whatnot. All I did for this session was on the first page of my little notebook here, and I will actually show Dan on the screen, that sort of top half and actually yeah. only about uh, only about maybe half to two thirds of that was stuff mm -hmm. that was written ahead of time. Yeah, it was just basically bullet points of like, here are the scenes. Here's kind of what's going on. Here's the idea of things. Yeah. And then I grabbed stat blocks, grabbed the stat blocks of the stuff that I knew was going to be sort of the opposition, copied those and printed. I had to print out that of those. And so it was like half a page of notes. And this is, by the way, a, a digest size notebook. This yeah, is a, like a, eight, a eight, six eight, by nine. By That's five by seven. Yeah, it's not. It's a, it's a five by seven. It's not a. <laughs> It's not an eight and a half by 11. So it's yeah. like even less. And it was just like, you know, sort of thought about that. Here's the thing. It went really well. Well, yeah, you're good at this. But I mean, yes, I am good at this. But each session went differently. Yeah. In terms of how things were handled, because I was not locked into a mind space of this is what the story is here are what the characters are going to do i yeah. just had basic descriptions of the image in my head of what the scene was like the first scene was just sort of the hey you get the job here's yeah. the basic info second scene was investigating a derelict to merchant riverboat mm -hmm. and then the third was the the pirate camp and i sort of had an idea of how each of them connected to the others but it was because all I had in my head was the scene. Yeah. I just basically described things and reacted as the players explored things. And they each went a little bit differently. But just in general, in the first session, when they came upon the pirate camp, they were like, oh, well, let's keep an eye. Let's watch here. And then at night, like, we'll sneak up on them when it's dark and they're all asleep. Get one of the outliers and we'll question them. Yeah. And like a lot more sort of in that sense. Whereas in, in another one, it was a lot more like direct fighting. And in the third one, it was kind of a kind of a mix of the two yeah. um, where they were like trying to scout, not at nighttime, but trying to scout out and find out what was going on. But it was like really, really flexible 
in terms of, okay, I am just reacting. And I understand newer game masters or other folks like that who don't have maybe the comfort level with Earthdawn as a system that I yeah. do, or just the improv chops in a sense when it comes to gaming that I have, mm -hmm. why you might not want to approach that. But I found it so liberating. <laughs> Liber yeah, liberating is a good word in a way, because yeah. I know the situation. I know what's going on. Mm -hmm. I know the set pieces, for lack of a better term, because, I mean, it is still in a sense kind of a railroad because it's a convention scenario. There's not yeah. a lot of ability necessarily to do a lot of, oh, whatever you guys want to do. Like, here's the job. Here's your exploration. Here's how it goes. But within each set piece, I was free to react in a way that mm -hmm. suited things as opposed to now I need to make sure in one, they went, they explored the riverboat this way. In this one, they came in another way. And it was, like, it was all just like really, really nice. Just having that yeah, you had more space of mapped out in my head. built in. If yeah. they do this, then they can do this. If they do this, then they can do this. Yeah, I had the space sort of mapped out in my head, even yeah. if I didn't have like actual maps drawn on paper or anything. Yeah. But I knew like, here's the layout of the riverboat as I've got it in my head. They decide they're going to bring their sailboat up to the back end mm -hmm. near where the, the pilot's like station is up top and kind of climb up the outside and start looking around up there while yeah. this group kind of beaches on the sandbar in front of it and starts poking around that way and comes around. I just react to what they're doing, which really is a, a good way yes. to game master. And I think in general, now you might want to, you collectively, you listeners at home who are mm -hmm. wondering about running games, yeah, take that kind of approach in that, you have an idea of where they're going to be going and like maybe the connective tissue a little bit from from set piece to set piece, from scene to scene. Yeah. But not necessarily have an idea what is going to happen specifically within a given scene. Mm -hmm. You just have your physical location. You understand where things are and, and what's where and that stuff. And any NPCs or Game Master characters or creatures or whatever that are in, that are in there and how they will behave and, and what their attitude and their goals are. And then you just react like you let the players say what they're doing. In one sense, it is ultimately the way these games should be played. Yeah. Without getting completely bogged down in minutia. Yeah. And obviously, you know, when you're doing a longer game or when, like me, you've been running convention games for ages and ages, you kind of have a rough idea of how people are most likely to Mm -hmm. proceed and so you can maybe think ahead of time about that yeah but here's the thing this is great <laughs> third day so this is saturday this is the last day for me of the con because we're flying out kind of early-ish on sunday yeah. so last session that i'm running i get to the convention center open up my bag pull out the pre-gen character packets that i've mm -hmm. got and this is uh like it's got a front page that's got the iconic like a piece of art that represents that name giver race. Yeah. The race and discipline, like the human the archer was one of the, yeah. like was like one of the options. And then like a, like a brief couple of paragraphs, one about the discipline and what their focus is. And one about the name giver race in particular and things that are peculiar, like, especially with regards to like the windling or the troll or the obsidian who are a little bit more exotic. Yeah. Like a little bit of a description of what they are like. Mm hmm. 
Then there's a character sheet, which I sort of have a custom sheet that I do in Excel for formatting reasons. Yeah. And then there's, depending on the discipline, like, and what circle they are, extra pages that have the basic rules for all of their talents and skills. And then the magicians have a grimoire as well, have all the spells that are in their spell book. So they have everything that they need. So you've got new players who might not have the rule book. Everything is right there. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Pull out the character packets, start setting them out, pull out my GM screen, set that out, set up my little dice tray, dump out my my dice bag and start filtering through my dice. I've got like a bunch of fate dice in my dice bag and (laughs) more D10s than I really need. So I like pull out all the extra stuff, but so that I have extra dice. Oh, yeah. And then I go back and I realize that I had left the folder with my I had my notebook which is also what I keep the, like when encounters like tracking damage and stuff, Mm -hmm. but I had left the folder with the opposition stat blocks back in the hotel room. Oh, nuts. So there are two things that you can do in this situation. One is just make stuff up, which I did not have to do in this case because I was like, oh, (laughs) well, the encounter in the first scene, the combat encounter that's in the riverboat scene is just a creature, like a straight up creature right out of the game master's guide. I had my tablet with me with, the GM's guide PDF on it. And I'm like, just flip to that totally. page. Boom. Yep. Got it. The other one, because it was pirates was I used the, um, from Morgan's blog. Yeah. The boatman as s- done up as a creature stat block rather than like a full adept. Yeah. Oh, well I've got my phone, which has an internet connection. And so I'll just pull it. Like basically I high tech it. <laughs> yeah. I, I high tech it. I was able to do what I needed to do. <laughs> With the stuff to hand, even without having left it. And if if I had not been able to do it, I still kind of had a rough idea of what they were. And I was perfectly comfortable winging it and and roughly making up the numbers as it was. But I didn't have to do that. No. Anyway, it all went well. One last thing before we wrap up here. Yeah. A first happened for me in all of the convention sessions that I have run. And I have run quite a number, both at Gen Con and I did one origins appearance many years ago i ran some sessions there i've run convention scenarios and whatnot at the local con up here only once has this ever happened a player got up and left the game in the middle of the session whoa i hope it was an emergency no actually i think it was a case where he was not happy with what he thought his character should be able to do oh I mean, he wasn't disruptive. He yeah. wasn't rude about it. He mm-hmm. wasn't toxic or or like, oh, this sucks, blah, 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 and like Didn't making things miserable. So. Yeah, and so, but he just, in the middle of a fight or towards the end of a fight, just kind of stood up, got his bag and left. And we were all just kind of like, guess that's that. <laughs> it was a pause thinking, oh, maybe he went to the bathroom. And I was like, no, he took his bag with him. He's not coming back. Yeah, okay. But basically he he had taken... He was new to Earth Dawn. He might oh. have had a little bit of a background in terms of a like a really basic idea of the setting, but he'd never played the game before. Fair. And he chose an Obsidian Elementalist as his character. Wow. Because that okay. was one of the pregens. And I'm like, spellcasters are a little bit more complex, but if you've played other games before, that's fine. Yeah. Basically, what ended up happening, and I think why he got frustrated, is that he saw that one of the spells in his grimoire was Flame Weapon. Yeah. Which is a great bread and butter boost spell spell for elementalists. You cast that on the weapon of your sword master or your warrior or whatever. So it gives them some extra damage when they hit. So he cast it on his own staff and then sort of realized that, oh, wait, 
I don't have any ability to really effectively hit with my staff. The idea with the elementalist is not you boost yourself up and then you Mm -hmm. whatever. And I think that that the Obsidiman, which by virtue of what they are, has kind of higher physical stats. Totally. And having a spell that enhances your weapon. Um, He also did not have earth darts. I don't know what his other spells were, but he also mentioned that he didn't have earth darts in any of his matrices. But that basically he cast the spell on his own staff, tried hitting things a couple of rounds and failed, obviously, because he was only rolling like a D10 for his attack and was just like, screw this, I'm out of here. Yeah. Uh, You know, which which I can understand. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, we had a couple of, um, other experienced players at the table, and he was not sort of up for corrective guidance in terms of what he could do. Suggestions. And so, yeah, okay. F- like, again, I don't get upset if somebody, like, bought a ticket and doesn't show up. Yeah. I'm not going to get upset if somebody finds, for whatever reason, that they're not satisfied with what's going on and that they think their time is better spent doing something else as long as they're not disruptive or shitty about it. And this guy was not. um, And I'm sorry that he kind of did not have the best experience. Eight characters, two of them are magicians. I usually have a mix of experienced and new players. Yes. Generally try and steer the newer players away from the spellcasters because they are a little bit more complex and they don't behave the way that spellcasters do. In other games. In other games. Just in terms of, the philosophy behind them from a design perspective, but also just in the way that the mechanics and stuff work. Totally. I'm glad you had a damn good time. Yeah, no, we had, had a good time. Um, but like broadly, uh, it was, it was a good experience. There was some shittiness that was going down online sort of in advance of Gen Con. Um, again, people who follow me on Twitter might've seen me kind of tweeting about it. There were some people, some, trolls online who were sending messages to notable BIPOC or or queer individuals Mm -hmm. masquerading as Gen Con security and just basically like being shitty and threatening them and being whatever. How much of a dick do you need to be? It's awful. Don't do that. If you do that, don't listen to our show. Don't play our games. No. Like we don't want to have anything to do with you. No. That's awful behavior. And I recognize that I have a position of privilege as a sort of game designer insider. Yeah. As a late forties white guy. Yeah. You know, in an industry that is heavily dominated by middle-aged white guys from mm-hmm. a professional perspective, but yes, there's no need for that. I don't condone it. I think it's shitty. You know, and and stuff like that. So, like, there was some of that that was going on. Um, Broadly speaking, though, there was not any, like, big public thing. There have been, of course, some incidents that have come out in the aftermath. I'm not going to get into those. Yeah. The typical kind of shittiness that sometimes happens, um, especially when you get people in a situation where they are away from their regular place Mm -hmm. and consuming alcohol And like the kind of shitty person that they are on some level kind of comes out and is allowed to let out. And that's that's all just bad. And cosplay is not consent. There are people who 
go to cons looking to hook up. I think yeah. in the current like medical situation of the world, that's probably not the best idea. Probably not. And, you know, obviously, if like no fucking means no, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, even if you have a relationship, professional, semi-professional, acquaintance mm-hmm. level or whatever, from yes. having interacted with folks online because you've done like a, a stream game together or whatever, that does not give you license to do whatever you want. Look, I'm going to be very blunt. It does not give you license to assault someone. Uh, no, it never, nothing ever gives you license to assault someone. <laughs> so that's all that kind of stuff happens. It's not cool. Agreed. But broadly speaking, a good, a good time. I am a little, I am a little concerned with the, I'm not surprised, but I am a little bit concerned with the number of people that I have sort of heard of like returning home and testing and like not feeling well, like, yeah. Or whatever, and testing positive and whatnot. And yeah. Yeah. Things ain't over, folks. Everybody has their own comfort level and whatnot. So yeah, there yeah. we go. No. Um, I still mask up wherever I go. Yeah. <laughs> Costs me nothing. Seriously. It's just the easiest way to do it. All there is. So on to our quizzical portion of the show. So a little bit more of me talking, not a whole lot, because Josh has a lot of answers to the questions that came in. So let's get to the first email we got here from uh, Digital Hermit. Gentlemen, nothing but praises for this podcast. I cut my Earth Dawn game mastering teeth on a few first edition published adventures, Mist of Betrayal, Shattered Pattern, Terror in the Skies, Blades. Now that I'm getting into fourth edition, I think a fourth edition update to those publications would be great for game masters and for FASA. I would gladly repurchase those updated versions, if that is not possible, maybe uh, a fourth edition addendum for first through third edition adventures, which I would purchase as well. In order to not compromise the original publications, the addendums could only give stats and updated descriptions of characters and certain items so as not to give the story away. Also, supplying the addendum to those previous editions when for new purchasers could bring new life into them. We have talked about this. There are no concrete plans when something like this might materialize, it's a matter of finding the available bandwidth time-wise to fit it in. We started talking about it when we when we started having the Foundry modules. Yeah. The Player's Guide and Game Master's Guide and various rulebooks and stuff developed for Foundry. There are also books in development for Roll20. Things are a little bit slower there. The idea being that It would be really nice to be able to sell a fourth edition electronic version of Mists of Betrayal or whatever. Yeah. But that would require doing the updates. So we have talked about it. No specific plans. It is on our radar and something that we are available or or, or, are aware of. And it's just a matter of figuring out when slash how we are going to be able to do that. Fair enough. So, paragraph two. Do you think for Game Masters, a commoner stat publication for non-adept NPC characters would be a great supplement? For example, a typical boatman, a bandit, highwayman, taverner, merchant, medicinal healer, etc. would help when players want to interact with them. The Game Master could just pull something from that publication in a pinch as opposed to creating them from scratch. Yeah, I don't think it's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. First thing that I would do, if you were not aware... There are a whole bunch of 
commoner is not quite the right word, but there's a whole bunch of Morgan's blog, the Panda yeah. Gaming Grove. Mm-hmm. There's a section called the Rogues Gallery, which has a whole bunch of like name givers statted up like creatures. Most of them are adepts, but rather than being like specific circles, they are sort of geared for different challenge levels and they just have a couple of powers that work a little bit differently. Like, for example, I mentioned the boatman that I had as the opposition in, in the game I ran this year. Yeah. Rather than having like tail attack as a combat option, it's a special maneuver where if they score an extra success on their attack test, they may spend that success to make a second attack with their tail so that if they don't ro- roll well enough, I, you don't have to worry about it at all. But yeah. there are things like that. Yeah, but I, I don't know that there's a lot of, for lack of a better term, non-combat opposition on that list. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I don't think it's a bad idea. I don't know whether it necessarily warrants a supplement of its own, like in terms of being in print, but maybe uh, if bandwidth could be found, it might not be a bad e-supplement of some point, but obviously no promises or anything along those lines in terms of it appearing anytime in the near future. Fair enough. Uh, Make the sound of someone getting on a soapbox, because he has a soapbox moment. Two things rub me wrong with new players to the Earthdawn universe. First, for them to play Earthdawn like D&D, I say to them, if you play this like D&D, you are likely to get your characters killed. Second, connecting Earthdawn to Shadowrun. I really do think the Earthdawn universe stands on its own without without that inference. Stepping off my soapbox. Also, I listened to your podcast on Audible. Maybe your listeners can hear it there as well. I cannot say enough for this much-needed podcast. Keep up the great work, Digital Hermit. Uh, So to address the soapbox, yes, there can be some issues with people who are familiar with D&D coming to Earthdawn, whatever edition of D&D that might be. I mean, when we started back in the 90s, it was second edition. Yeah. I in some cases, really enjoyed players coming to Earthdawn from D&D because there are some things that Earthdawn does that will catch a D&D player by surprise. Oh, yeah. For example, the favorite one, I think, of a lot of, <laughs> of Earthdawn GMs, Cadaver Men. There is yes. nothing better than having your players give them a description that goes, oh, it's undead. These are like zombies. These yeah. are undead. These should be fine. And then you deal them a wound and they frenzy and like wreck everybody's day. Oh, yeah. Those are wonderful. Ghouls as well, where rather than the paralysis, they they deal damage with their poison, um, I think is a nice little twist. Yeah. Um, and a lot of like the traditional fantasy creatures that do show up in Earthdawn tend to have a little bit of a twist or something that's a little bit different about them. I think usually the exploding dice catch them as well. Yeah, I don't know that I would go so far as to say that if you play Earthdawn like you play D&D, you're likely to get your characters killed, only because there are so many ways to actually play D&D. There are so many different approaches and styles, depending on what edition you might have learned in, depending on your particular game group style and all sorts of other things. Yes, there are certainly approaches that you can take to Earthdawn you know, that if you are bringing them in from a certain style of play is likely to to potentially cause you some issues. The exploding dice, the open-ended mechanics of Earthdawn always provide a certain amount of uncertainty yeah. and perhaps a little bit more caution. But I can definitely understand there is sometimes a sense, particularly with people who might be newer to gaming in general, mm-hmm. that are sort of coming from D&D with a very video gamey 
approach to things because of how much Dungeons and Dragons influenced computer RPG design. Yeah. And kind of taking that approach and bringing it into a game like Earth Dawn, which uses a different mechanic and has some different fundamental underlying stuff, could potentially cause you some issues. Mm -hmm. So that's fine. Second, connecting Earth Dawn to Shadowrun, the Earth Dawn universe absolutely stands on its own without totally. requiring that connection to Shadowrun for myself. I like the connections between the two. I like the fact that you have NPCs, the dragons and immortals and so forth that kind of show up in both places and understanding what happened in the past can sort of provide insight into why things are working the way that they are in the future. But it is absolutely not required. And I think the original design of the game, mm -hmm. the original development of Earthdawn and Shadowrun under the original Fasigard, always had those connections being a little bit more of an Easter egg and treats for those who were into both. Yeah. More than something that was required in order to actually be able to use either game. Yeah. And I think that I have never been super into the idea of expanding the cosmology even further. Now we've got like super far future Shadowrun or super far future sci-fi yeah. post sixth world scourge and whatever. Mm-hmm. Because I've never felt that there was anything compelling enough for it, for them as a setting beyond we get to bring all of this stuff into a sci-fi thing. Yeah. The settings never felt like they stood, like they necessarily stood well enough on their own conceptually mm -hmm. to capture me. That might be different for different people. Yeah. But that's, that's just me. I'm also not so much of a sci-fi gamer when it comes to my RPGs sure. uh, than I, as I am a fantasy or, or modern day urban fantasy slash horror kind mm -hmm. of thing. But that's just me and why a game like, for example, Equinox, which was originally planned as a as a super late sixth world or eighth world setting or whatever it actually was. Yeah. I never felt super into it. But yeah, um, Audible doesn't surprise me that that we're on there. Hmm. I imagine that it's because they're connected with because um, they're owned by Amazon. Yeah. And Amazon probably scrapes things the same way that Google podcasts and all of those <laughs> others do. So, yeah, not cool. If we're on Audible. Fantastic. I, I had never actually looked into that. No, I had not either, but I'm happy to be there. So it works for me. All right. I uh, got another one here from Chris. Hey, guys, uh, just started listening and I love the show. I'm on episode 40, so I should be caught up soon. I want to know your definition of soon, but that's just me. I'm starting a Shosara quest starting in October, and I'm looking for clarification or ideas before we start. If any of these have been asked before, I apologize. My questions are as follows. On page 244 of the Elven Nations, it refers to the West as the Wilds of Pelsari. Is this the province or lost province where the Fearbrewid originate from? And could there be a civilization living in the mountains like the Toads of Vasgothia? I mean, to... to Briefly answer the question. I don't know that it's a name that had been used previously. Um, so if you kind of look at the maps that are in Elven Nations, Shosara is a, a peninsula that's kind of sticking up into in the far north, sort of like on what is the present day sort of northern Russian coast. Yeah. And when it's referring to the west, 
it's broadly speaking referring to the Scandinavian peninsula, Finland, mm-hmm. uh, Sweden, Norway. and Norway. Yeah. The only place that it might have been mentioned before would potentially have been in the original Theron Empire book. Quite possibly. But I think it was a name that was originally... Yeah, it, that's not that doesn't appear in the original Theron Empire book. So I think it was original, like, made up for Elven Nations. I think Fair. that was sort of the first time that that came up. And yes, broadly speaking, it is where the Furbruid sort of are from, or at least that's the sort of where they appear to be from. And it is conceivable that there could be a civilization of them. Uh, the toads that he's referring to, the toads of Asgothia, are um, the Grethrump. Yeah. Which are sort of a, an orc, I think they're sort of like an orc subgroup that are in Vasgothia. They don't really appear much in the new Vasgothia book that will be out shortly, but it is possible that there could be. Obviously within Elven Nations, they are just this kind of vague threat slash hazard yeah. um, for folks that it, that journey into that sort of Western area in search of true elements and so forth. And there is actually, there are a couple of more Furbruid varieties that are in the Vasgothia book because Vasgothia is south of there. And so they, they kind of show up in there as well. But that, there is very little, it was something that was originally created for Elven Nations as a thing there in the North it's one of those things, kind of like the people from across the Eras Sea, that is a open, hey, here's something interesting that allows us potentially space to explore in the future, um, or not, uh, depending on what our development plans end up doing. Fair. But as of right now, yeah, it's, it's just basically this, the area off to the west, which corresponds roughly to the modern day Scandinavian peninsulas. There are these dangerous creatures that are there, and it is possible that there may be, uh, they may be more civilized or may have communities or whatever that are as yet undiscovered or, or unexplored. You don't know, do you? All right, question number two. Are there dragons in Shosara? Um, the book certainly doesn't describe any. Fair. Doesn't mean that there aren't. So, yeah. yes, there absolutely could be. They just don't have... The influence in that area, or at least within the way that the, the in the, within the focus of the book, they don't have any significant political influence on what is going on. But there is a lot of sort of wild, unexplored territory. It is absolutely possible that there could be a dragon um, or dragons, plural, yeah. that are in that area. Because I know Alamaze isn't in Barsave. Usually, Al- yeah. Alamaze could conceivably have a lair up in that area. There's already sort of enough going on with the potential immortal elves <laughs> yeah. that we didn't want to drag the dragons into things and have it just be like a sort of bar save rehashed kind yes. of idea. Exactly. You know, one of those things. Uh, besides the fur brewed issue, the Renell power struggle and the Denerastus being sneaky snakes. Are there any major events to play off of? Um, the big one is... It's sort of a Rennell power struggle issue, but the big one is if you want to involve the larger scale future of the Elven nations, the the Wormwood diaspora, yeah, and the Acorns of Oakheart and the various things going on with that, 
that is absolutely, if you're looking for a sort of more epic, large scale thing, Mm -hmm. that absolutely could be a major driving factor. We have not done any real progress in terms of advancing that storyline in any published material. But yeah, that would be the big thing. The the interaction between the Rennells, but also what Wormwood and what Seriatha slash the Gwadenro would sort of be interested in, in terms of that broader struggle between those three elven communities. Fair enough. Last, there was a spell called City in a Bottle in one edition or another. Do you think that could be applied to a country? I was going to do an Earth Dawn Lord of the Rings first stage mashup east of the map. Thank you guys for your hard work. P.S. Can I still contribute to the Vasgothia Kickstarter? Chris. Yes, the spell called City in a Bottle originally appeared in first edition. They might have reprinted it in second and or third. I'm pretty sure it showed up in classic because classic had everything. Yep. Could it be applied to a country? That feels like a little bit of a stretch. Um, I don't remember offhand what circle City in a Bottle was. I feel like it was like a pretty significant like 14th or 15th circle. I want to say 13, 14, 15 ritual. Um, I've got to remember what book it was in. I'm pretty sure the companion first edition. No, actually it wouldn't have been in, it wouldn't have been in companion. It was too high a circle for that. Yeah. Mystic magical secrets. I actually, I think it was more likely in arcane mysteries. I was going to make, um, yeah, city in a bottle. It was a circle 15 spell that appeared in, uh, originally in arcane mysteries of bar save. Yay. I mean, (laughs) (sighs) it's already 15th circle. It's already 15 circle. And like an entire country feels like a little bit of a reach for it. Yeah. I would say, what does the story that's connected with it involve? Because we've had lots of weird, powerful, magical stuff that's happened. Like as a sort of variation on that, Parlength being removed into an astral pocket. Yes. You know, for a period of time. I mean, it it feels to me like a, a nation as a thing, a country as a thing is not so much of a concept. Like we're sort of dealing with city states, broadly speaking. Mm -hmm. And so it feels to me like a city would be sort of the limit of that. I mean, even the kingdom of Thrall is really just present day accepted where they've got multiple cities, but like the original kingdom of Thrall, the halls of Thrall is really just a big city that happens to be in tunnels underground. Yeah. It feels to me like, a city is probably the limit. But if you've got a an interesting story, some kind of compelling thing that could be going on, if you're talking about pre-scourge, high-powered magic sort of stuff going on, I, I don't know that I would even necessarily be inclined to have the need to come up with stats for it, simply because they didn't have stats for the spell that hid Parlength away. Yeah. Is it something, uh, other than it being like sort of a setting feature, how are the player characters going to be interacting with it? Mm-hmm. Is this a case where they're going to be, um, obviously anything that powerful is going to be a unique named ritual spell, which means yeah. that in order to dispel it, if that's like what your goal is, um, you would, they would need to discover key knowledge about it. Mm-hmm. However much is appropriate or whatever. And if it's just something that is a like past feature of the setting, then you'd need to be even less specific about it. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, can you still contribute to the Vasgothia Kickstarter? No, the Vasgothia was actually two Kickstarters ago. <laughs> the PDF, as I mentioned earlier, the PDF of Vasgothia will very likely be out by the time you actually are able to hear this episode. Um, while we've been recording, I've actually been getting 
<laughs> Direct messages from Morgan with some final tweaks and fixes in terms of spelling or fixing italics that should be bold or whatever. Yeah. With our plans to try and have that released as soon as we can get it done, hopefully as we're recording this this upcoming weekend. Yeah. Um, so you cannot contribute to the Vasgothia Kickstarter. I think when the PDF becomes available, it will be available to everybody. Um, but usually we also do a pre-order where you can like pre-order a physical copy as well. I don't quite know what the timeline is for the physical copies to be printed and delivered, but that is something that will probably be available as well. And I think everything else that was part of that Kickstarter is available in the shop already. So the only thing that we're sort of waiting on is Vasgothia, and yeah. that is going to be out imminently. Mm -hmm. Can't wait for my kit in the mail. Chris has a follow-up email. You're fine. Uh, hey, guys, finished episode 47 today about Trevar. Fantastic The episode. previous one was 40, so that's like seven. Yeah. That's like seven episodes. He's cruising. Uh, about Trevar. Fantastic episode and book. The Ivory Codex was a fantastic backstory for the area. I was wondering where all five ancient cities are. I know where, where four are located and have ideas for the last unless I missed something. One, Trevar is Taravar. Two, Mist Swamps, Irns Morgath. Three, Kratis, as in Kratis. And four, the Service Jungle, unknown name city. Five might be the ancient kingdom of Scavia or Eris Nehem, where the Astral Abyss and Ristul reside. Keep up the great work, guys. P.S. Was there a printed version of Misguided Ambitions? I have all of third and fourth edition books so far, except for that one. I know there's a PDF online, but I was just wondering. So I have not read the Travar book in a while. Me neither. Clearly, the impression is that one of them is Travar, because that's where the Ivory Codex is located. Yes. The second one is strongly implied to be Irons Morgath in uh, The Mist Swamps. Kratis, Kratis, um, God, I haven't read the history chapter of that in years. Yeah. I don't know whether that's, and again, I haven't read the Trevar book in a while, so I'm not sure whether that's a reference to, whether he's referencing something that was in the Kratis book or whether that's a reference in the Trevar book to Kratis. That is a possibility. Yep. The Servos Jungle, that is a reference to uh, one of the legends Adventures, and I think Legends of Barsave Volume 2, The Book of Exploration, there is an adventure or a, a hook in there that talks about a lost city that was in the Servos Jungle. That's an interesting idea. I don't know necessarily that that is what Alan had in mind. I don't know that Alan specifically had in mind what all of the locations were off the top of my head. This could be, again, a thing like we were talking about with the Pelsari where it's just like, yeah, here's a thing that has potential hooks that we might grab onto later on. Totally. And the ancient kingdom of Scavia, I don't think so. Um, or Arasnahem, I think both of those are too recent to be tied into what's going on with the Ivory Codex and the deep history there. Scavia is also more or less like really close to the mist swamps and whatnot. So that like wouldn't be the, the same thing. Fair. And Arasnahem was a care that was built. So that didn't really exist prior to uh, the, the Scourge. Um, so that really wouldn't apply either. But I don't have any real problem with the first three on the list. Um, the third one, Kratos, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Fair. No. Um, as fair. to Misguided Ambitions. I've only ever seen it in PDF as well, because I have... Yeah, I don't... Materials. 
think so. Let me. No, I don't. I'm. I am at this point now that I pulled it up. I think Misguided Ambitions was only available in PDF because it was the free introduction adventure. Yeah. So I don't think that there was ever a, a print version of it available. I could be wrong. That's my. That's my recollection as well. That was the the same as well for for several of the shards, yep. although many of them did get sort of collected into shards volume one and volume two, yes. I think. Yes. Um, not all of them necessarily did, but I'm pretty sure that Misguided Ambitions only existed in PDF. You are, I, my recollection as well. It's not on my shelf and I have not everything, but most of the things. It's not on my shelf either. And I have everything, <laughs> just about everything. Uh, onto a different email from a different Chris. This is like an all Chris email episode, so we'll have to title that somewhere. Uh, we have a little Charlie's Chris's. Exactly. We have a little disagreement in our group on how to handle a new circle, just reached two, and new talents if you circle up and have less than 200 legend points. Here we go. You need no legend points to train for the new circle, but then you can buy the new talent and talent option. So. Yes, that is, that is correct so far. Okay, which is the case. We got four options. One. You can purchase the new talent at any point after reaching the circle and the talent option at any time before reaching the next circle. Or two, you can only purchase the new talent and talent option after reaching the circle, so must have 200 legend points available. Or three, you can only purchase the new talent and talent option after reaching the circle, but can get them at zero rank, as some talents and example characters, so don't have to pay legend points straight away. Or four is Josh gets to fill in the blank. Thanks for your thoughts. <laughs> so it's sort of a mix. When you train with your mentor, your trainer, for the new circle, you do not need to spend any legend points to be, to be initiated into second circle. Part of that training does teach you the rudiments of your discipline talent, because that's the same across all practitioners of the discipline. You effectively, you get it at quote unquote rank zero. You can't use it. You don't have any ranks in it. There's no ability there, but you can spend the legend points to increase it to rank one, which actually would only cost you 100 legend points as a second circle talent. Yep. At any time thereafter. And, and it's, it would be sort of its own downtime action. You complete your training. You're now second circle. You can then spend eight hours in meditation to buy rank one in your discipline talent. And that can happen at any time. You can even if for what like if you're following the rules as written, obviously you have to have raised it to rank three before you can advance to third circle. But if you're using the all talents to advance option, it is theoretically possible that you could advance in circle before you've spent any points to raise its rank. Yeah, most people don't do that, though. Same thing for the talent option. So you can purchase the rank in that at any time. Most people have a pretty good idea of what talent they want to take as their option. Mm -hmm. And depending on how you as a game master wish to handle the details of it, can either pseudo hand wave it. Theoretically, within the fiction, you should be trained the rudiments of it by somebody who knows it. Yeah. So if your trainer doesn't know that talent, then you would need to go and find somebody who can teach it to you. Mm -hmm. But within the framework of discipline advancement, that's not something that sort of is required as a separate thing. So at any point, and whether you have advanced in circle or not, 
if you have an option slot open at a given circle, if it has not been filled by a talent, you can select the talent to fill that slot more or less at any time. Mm -hmm. So if you don't know what talent you want to take as your option when you get to second circle, you don't have to pick right then. You can wait and decide at any point thereafter, even if you haven't decided by the time you otherwise qualify for third circle and you train in advance to third circle. If you still haven't filled that second slot, it's not wasted. It's still there available for you to drop a talent in at whatever point. You just need to have the legend points available to increase it from to increase it to rank one, yeah. which uh, for novice tier talents is just 100 legend points. It's sort of one with a bit of three and four. There you go. You can do it at any point after you have advanced to the circle. And the rest of it is more or less set dressing and how in-depth you want to be in terms of simulating the way that it would theoretically work within the setting. I tend to personally, when I'm running a game, I tend to just hand wave it. Unless you are dealing with a particular mentor that you have fully statted out and have like all of their talents available and stuff, uh, and like you're just doing it, okay, yeah, like you're in the city, you Mm -hmm. look around to find a mentor, you find somebody whose third circle it's going to cost you X amount, Done. I will hand wave. Yeah, I'll like hand wave and they they can teach you the ability that you want to take as your option. Yeah. Spend your time, legend points, money, go. (laughs) Uh, You know, if you are dealing with a particular mentor and this may become more likely in higher circles where you will have maybe specific mentors, but also keep in mind that when you get into higher circles, there are fewer of them about and it is possible that there are more options than there are practitioners of the discipline at that circle totally and so the how difficult you want to make it to be is up to you i personally don't like to make it particularly difficult yeah because i'm a softy yeah well there's that too uh unless you want to make an entire campaign out of finding the right master that's just me that is certainly something that I personally feel is a, a bit more appropriate for higher circle play yeah. like when you're getting into upper journeyman or or lower warden tier absolutely characters where you where there are a lot fewer of them around novice tier i wouldn't worry about it there were there were second third fourth circle adepts you know in any major city you're going to have a choice broadly speaking you know again if you want to make them a fixture in the campaign Mm -hmm. then by all means do so i think that's great that's kind of what we've got going on in the legends of bar save adventure there are example there is a practitioner for each of the core 15 players guide disciplines so that all of the player characters in theory have somebody that they could learn from uh in order to advance in circle but those get like they're all fourth circle so they're there to basically get people through novice tier yeah totally my my party figured out that uh anybody who's worth their salt retired at sixth circle and opened a bar so uh (laughs) the bartender was who they were looking for finally was bartender what circle were you? Great. You can teach me what I need to know. Uh, go out in the back alley and learn it. So uh, last email from Lee. Hey, Lee, how you doing? Haven't heard from you in a while. Uh, hi, Dan. Hi, Josh. Thank you for the hard work you both put into these broadcasts. Still enjoying listening in. Using the eye of Thrall. Politics, I think, is possibly a major driving aspect for a Thrall-centered campaign. The Crown versus the Old Guard versus the minor merchant houses, for example. Players don't need to be hired directly or indirectly by the eye. The antagonists only need to think they represent the eye and are using their given tasks as cover. As they complete guarding ruins or trade missions for Merchant House, agents of the eye may or may not also be conducting operations at the same destination. 
This would lead to other groups looking into the player's background, or even, eventually, outright attempts to neutralize them. Evidence for this would eventually reach them. Messages that family members have been waylaid and questioned, their rooms broken into and ransacked, journals stolen, etc. Inclusion in parallel, rather than direct involvement with the sense that you're coming at them sideways. Yeah, I think I sort of got edged around that at the tail end of the episode where we were talking about them, where you could use them as complications or something else that was going on. But this is a really good idea as well. The eye might be doing something or have interest in what's going on in the area at the same time and could potentially be a complication in the sense that opposition, the Therans or Denerastus or whatever, might think that the player characters are working for the eye when in fact they aren't. And that could just make things more complicated, more difficult. Um, depending on the style of game you're running, complications can be fantastic. So, no, those are all great ideas. Yeah, I like them all. Uh, and questions for future podcasts. He goes, yes, and then drops in a clip of, if you've not seen this movie, the everyone line delivered by Gary Oldman in Leon, The Professional. Bring me everyone. What do you mean everyone? Everyone! Oh, Oh, best delivered line in cinema history. Sorry, can't top it. Sorry, couldn't help myself. Uh, that the Scrying Serpent River and all of their individual interrelationships could be a really good deep dive. More windlings! Yes, more windlings. Uh, Metaplot musings would be nice, with the caveat that anything Josh says is not promised future works. Uh, Theron reaction to Skypoint falling. Advice for general campaign plot building. Uh, for example, how does Josh prune the shrub that is a game outline? Listen to the first 20 minutes of this episode. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> things that you haven't talked about yet, but spark your interest and passion, and so should definitely be included. All I got for now, looking forward to the next podcast and have an awesome summer, Lee. Yeah, the Tuscrang Serpent River, we've talked about something that we are, that is something that's sort of on the list that we're going to talk about. Yeah. More windlings, I'm not sure how we could include them more than we already have. Not sure how much more we can dig in that mine. <laughs> There's not a lot of published material about them that we haven't sort of already covered to a certain extent. Fair. Problem with metaplot musings, if if what you're talking about is ideas for future stuff, I'm not going to talk about that on the show because <laughs> that is stuff that I would instead sit down and talk with Morgan about and, and say, hey, here are some ideas. And that would be something that actually would potentially be in future works. I am happy to talk about past Metaplot stuff. Totally. Um, which we do quite a bit when it talk, comes to like first edition yeah. um, and stuff like that. But yeah, sorry, I'm not going to muse on future Metaplot developments because that is something that we could actually use. And product to sell. So eventually. Theron reaction to Skypoint falling. Yes, that is something that is on my mental checklist for the like revisited Vivane book. Yep. If when that ever materializes advice for general campaign plot building, man, we I have done far too. I've well, yeah, <laughs> but I have also done far too much like one shot running. I've done a couple of like successful sort of long-term campaigns, yeah. but that's not a bad topic. No, that's a good topic. I'm just not sure how coherent a, I would need to like work on that and maybe have an outline or a plan going into discussing <laughs> such a thing. Fair. Cool. No, but and also things that we haven't talked about yet that spark our interest. Well, obviously. Yeah, we have a list. We have a list. We spent like 35 minutes at the top of the show talking about Gen Con and my <laughs> adventure prep and experience for Gen Con. Totally. So, yeah, uh, that's the last email, right? That is the last email. So 
we okay. have a few minutes left. We were going to discuss the Dragon's Network in the Secret Societies of Barsave, and then realized this has already been covered material. Yeah, um, the Dragon's Network is the last uh, entry in the Secret Societies book that we have not yet talked about. It's been Secret covered. Societies book. It's been covered. <laughs> yeah, in, in a sense, Dragon episodes. Yeah, them. Go back and listen to the various episodes about the Great Dragons, and you will get quite a bit of information indirectly or directly about the Dragon's Network. Uh, it is in the Secret Societies book, which was published before the Dragon's book. Yes. It serves a similar purpose in some regards to the Life Rock Rebellion and the Eye of Thrall, in that the information that is in there was was laying the groundwork and setting the stage for future plot developments. And the Dragon's Network provides yet another organization that player characters or campaigns that are dealing more directly with the meta plot of Barsave at the time could be involved with. You know, if they didn't want to work for Thrall or they or, you know, whatever. Or I mean, they could work for any and or all of those organizations in, in varying degrees. But for the most part, the Dragons Network is the great dragons are working together and and have a bunch of agents that are operating to deal with the Theron presence at Lake Ban yeah. and the arrival of the Triumph and the sort of ongoing plot leading up to the war to kick them out. Mm -hmm. And then the dragons source book, especially this, the half of the book that was focused on the great dragons yeah. was sort of expanding on that a little bit more. So we don't really have anything to add at this point that we sort of haven't already in various capacities, much like the eye of Thrall could be used as another organization. There's a little bit more likelihood when it comes to the dragons network that they will be using the player characters without the player characters knowledge mm -hmm. necessarily. If you want a sort of example of that kind of thing, the first edition adventure shattered pattern is kind of a little bit of a template that could work for a sort of covert dragons network type adventure where the player characters become involved in the affairs of dragons, but don't necessarily know that that's the case until later if they find out at all. But yeah, I mean, that's the case. Like the dragons have stuff that they want to do. They are a little bit more focused on aspects of things in a different capacity, but they would also be working closely with Nedin and the Eye of Thrall and the Life Rock Rebellion in their own ways, because all of those organizations are working together, broadly speaking, with the goal of kicking the Therans out of Barsave. Yeah. And obviously, in the post-war period, if we're talking about fourth edition, the Dragons Network is a lot more likely to be involved in meddling in the affairs of the Denerastus, because those are sort of the big threat and the reveal, in a sense, of the original Dragons sourcebook was that the outcast was being a lot more proactive mm -hmm. in terms of his desires to mess with the other great dragons of Barsave. And so consequently, Mountain Shadow and the others are in the process of, now that the Therans are dealt with, shifting their attentions to ruining the outcast's day. Fair. But that's that's basically, otherwise you're looking at, at similar kinds of things as the Eye of Thrall or the Life Rock Rebellion, in that they are a group that is ostensibly sort of a an organization that your typical player character group could potentially be involved with um, as patrons or whatever. Fair. 
So I think that covers it. We got the Gen Con wrap up. We got the emails taken care of. All the questions are answered there. And the Secret Society of the Dragons Network, we covered kind of in 12 parts <laughs> much, much earlier before we hit episode 100. So we are done with this episode, folks. I think it is time for you to email us your legend. Good night, everybody. <laughs>